0: You know, COVID-19 is a dangerous, all-encompassing, downright awful virus that is wreaking havoc on our country. But one thing COVID-19 is not is sentient. What I mean by that is, while it's true that COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting communities of color, it is not doing so because the virus itself is targeting Black and brown folks. Instead, the system in which COVID-19 operates targets black and brown
1: folks. That's Daniel E. Dawes, one of the leading experts on health equity in the U.S. As executive director of Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine, Daniel's among the most knowledgeable about the history of our health system and how we really got here. So get ready to go on a journey back to the beginning with our founding fathers to truly understand the political determinants of health, why we're in this position today, and how long our marginalized and underserved communities have suffered at the hand of a broken system.
0: During the early days of this pandemic, we thought that this virus was the great equalizer because it was infecting people without regard to how athletic or healthy they were or how rich they were. But we know now that COVID-19 has proven to be the great revealer, the great exacerbator, right? Because the virus is simply amplifying the disparities in the system that have existed and persisted for so many years. So to succinctly answer your question of why it is disproportionately affecting Native Americans, Latinx and Black people, it's because our system disproportionately affects Native American, Latinx and Black people. COVID-19 is simply reading the room.
1: I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World. I'm here with my co-hosts, Catherine Delson and Deepti Pava. And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Hi everybody, I'd like to welcome our listeners back to Contact World. Now that the vaccines are being rolled out and the first patients are receiving them, it's critical for people to understand the importance of this progress and the misinformation they may be hearing or reading. So I urge our listeners to check out episode one and the conversation we had with Dr. Peter Hotez, world-renowned vaccine expert. Today, and for the next two episodes, Catherine Deepti and I are going to talk about something that's really important. We're gonna focus on healthcare and the inequities of our healthcare system. We hear so much about the social determinants of health, but one of the things that escapes most of the media are the political determinants of health and how our system is broken. And it's been that way for a long time. We spend more money on healthcare in the United States than really any other developed nation, but we have the worst healthcare ratings of anyone. So it's really interesting to see the underlying causes of those which often tracks back to politics.
2: You know, Justin, one of the memos from Vice President-elect Kamala Harris written in April when she was still a senator where she says that, you know, they need to prioritize addressing the racial health inequities during COVID-19. But what she wrote was, these numbers are staggering, sobering, but unsurprising, which means that they reflect longstanding inequities in our healthcare system. COVID-19 has just amplified old problems which require a new radical approach to solving these issues for, you know, for health inequities, as well as it's just exposed the fragility of these systems.
3: I think one of the key things is the hope and the potential that there is for us to make changes to the systems. Yes, there are inequities. Yes, there are disparities. But with the new administration and everything else that is happening, with people being more aware of what's going on out there, that level of awareness is positioning us to make the changes, the radical changes that are needed to better position our public health systems and help people and make sure that they are okay.
1: I really like what you said about hope because we take all of the strides we've made in healthcare for granted. It is scary to think that Obamacare has actually been in front of the Supreme Court, and at least we've had some early wins there. But we're living right now in a movement where things are getting better. And to your point, the new administration has clearly made a dedication to changing and building upon the political determinants of health. So, Deepthi, you had the opportunity to speak with the daughter of a healthcare worker who lost her life to COVID-19. We're actually gonna dedicate an entire episode to the conversation that you had because it's just so important. What did you learn from that conversation with Fianna Tulip?
2: Yeah, Justin, I spoke with Fianna Tulip. She's a hero in my opinion. She's actually turning her grief into action. During my conversation with her, all I heard her say was an urge, a plea to people. To take this disease more seriously, to save themselves and them and their family and their
3: and their loved ones. You know, those are the stories that put us on better path to really help to equalize the system to the extent that we can. Guys, it's always great discussing the issues with you. And we're about to hear from Daniel Dawes. Justin, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I gotta tell you, I, I don't think I've ever learned so much about our healthcare system. We learn how politics has a direct impact on healthcare, health workers, health equity in this country, and also some of the strides that we made under Obamacare. And what we really need to do is meet this moment and keep the momentum that we have. So I'm really excited to share that with our listeners. I can count on one hand, Daniel, the people in the world that really, truly inspire me. Who inspired you to dedicate your life or what inspired you to health equity? Well, you know,
0: my journey to improve the health of all communities, to eliminate health disparities and to advance health equity and reform our health system really began with a series of personal experiences that I had with our health system. It was in witnessing my father's struggle to attain healthcare owing to his pre-existing conditions, right? It was, you know, witnessing and observing disparities in the length of life and in the health status between my Black and white family members, as well as a number of other things. And I think my interest in health reform was piqued when I discovered the hardships many people in my own community were facing. Nowhere is that Hardship more evident, I think, and shocking than in healthcare and in public health, where a lack of resources or insurance and and disparities in care can deprive desperately ill people of the quality care, the treatments and the medicines that they need to survive and thrive. So I wanted to do something about it. During high school, I volunteered at a hospital where I got a up-close look at the massive problems faced by underserved communities. On my first day I was assigned to the emergency department and witnessed an episode that convinced me that I wanted to spend the rest of my life increasing awareness of and meaningfully addressing health disparities. This involved a woman who had immigrated from Haiti. She was in a great deal of pain, but each time she tried to tell the staff about her problems, they responded with nothing more than blank stares. Very unfortunate. And this patient could speak only Haitian Creole. As I watched her trying to make herself understood, I could not help but think, oh my gosh, what if her condition is life-threatening? Every second was critical. That afternoon was a revelation for me about how vulnerable many patients really are and how complicated healthcare delivery could be in the United States. It was from that path forward that I knew I wanted to dedicate my life to understanding what was determining and driving these health outcomes. And how could we realize a healthy, equitable, and inclusive society where every individual in our society is afforded a fair opportunity to not only be healthy, but to also reach their full potential?
1: So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, what does the word, uh, term health equity mean?
0: Yeah, the the most succinct way to define health equity is to understand that it is all about providing every person with the care that they need in the amount that they need in order to help them achieve their optimal level of health. So health equity at its core is a tailored approach so that each individual is able to overcome the systemic and the systematic barriers that stand in the way.
1: One of the things that shocks me is the United States is the largest economy in the world, and it accounts for about 25% of the global economy. But somehow we spend more on healthcare amongst all the high-income countries, but we consistently rank last in performance. How did we get here?
0: So I can tell you that we didn't get here starting four years ago or even 40 years ago. You know, for too long, many racial and ethnic minorities, people with disabilities and lower socioeconomic status individuals have found themselves in a precarious situation. Their health, their lives have literally been hanging into balance, right, over centuries. And many of them have been falling through the cracks of our health system, our education system, human services system, behavioral health system, you name it, right? They struggle to live in a society that has erected barrier after barrier to weaken their bodies and hasten their deaths. We've seen this for over 400 years in America. These groups have experienced health inequities throughout the life course from womb to tomb. But they've struggled also to gain access to quality health services. So to get to your question, you know, to understand why the US healthcare system specifically is the way it is, you really have to go back over 150 years ago and look at the early days of healthcare in the U.S., up and to the present times. So if you would permit me, I'd like to take maybe a couple of minutes to walk us through that history. Is that okay? Absolutely, please do. So we know that, you know, for almost 230 years, uh, there were a group of abolitionists, mental health reformers, advocates for homeless populations, and others who had labored assiduously to get our policymakers to implement policies that would drive health equity. They pleaded with our newly formed government, begging them to really advance and implement, right, policies that would drive that needle of health equity forward. Well, the abolitionists decided at that point to approach Benjamin Franklin. They said, Benjamin, would you please use your influence and your power, your privilege, to help us advance this cause, this agenda. And although Benjamin Franklin had been a lifelong slave owner, he decided that, you know what, slavery, that these inequities in our society were horrible, they were awful. And so he says, yes, I will help you craft this petition and I'll sign it and let's send it to Congress. And in this petition, they argued for not only abolishing slavery, but to provide medical care to these individuals, to stop the separation of children from their mothers, from the breakup of these enslaved families. They begged them to provide educational opportunities and meaningful and true employment opportunities. What that letter did was to unleash one of the greatest debates in the U.S. Congress. People were upset with Benjamin Franklin. Well, The Senate decided they weren't going to even entertain Benjamin Franklin's letter, right? But the House said they could not ignore it. And so bullet by bullet, they made an argument for why they couldn't stop the separation of these children from their mothers and the breakup of these enslaved families, why they couldn't provide medical care and education and employment opportunities, et cetera, basically making an argument that the people— are in the states and the states are closest to the people so the states therefore should be the ones basically providing this medical care and providing the educational opportunities it's not the role of the federal government we are not authorized by the constitution to provide for the general welfare of our citizens which we know is not true we see how quickly that argument's pushed aside right in moments (laughs) of crises and that was the first time in u.s history that the light of health equity had dimmed in the United States. Well, it would take us 75 years after that, before these groups, these advocates got together. And they, again, during a major crisis, the Civil War, pleaded with President Abraham Lincoln and his supporters to create a bill. That would address what we now know as the social determinants of health, right? They wanted not only to abolish slavery, but they also wanted to provide food and clothing and education, employment opportunities, as well as medical care. And fortunately, you had a majority of proponents in the Congress who said, you know what, we are going to advance this health reform agenda. We are going to advance civil rights for these formerly enslaved people, right? And poor whites who will be displaced as a result of the civil war. And finally, after two years of negotiating from 1863 to 1865, they finally succeeded in getting this bill passed, right? That was intended to address all of these determinants that drive health inequities. But there was one provision that was the most contentious. It was the idea of providing medical care, health services. There was no appetite in that Congress, even though they had a majority to provide medical care. So President Abraham Lincoln decided that, you know what, in the spirit of compromise, we'll strike that provision and leave the rest intact. And that's what they did. Well, that became the most comprehensive health reform in America. But as you and I know, Justin, you know, racism doesn't sleep in America. And the forces, the opponents of health equity, were working overtime. After seven years, they finally overturned the Freedmen's Bureau Act. It would then take us 150 years after that to create similar legislation in the form of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So our country's unique approach to health care really hinges on the prioritization of many other factors and concerns. Rather than prioritizing the health and well-being of individuals, while it's true that we as a country spend far more than many other high-income countries on healthcare, it's also true that a lot of that spending allows us to be on the absolute cutting edge of medical technology and research. So that's a plus, right? Right. But at the same time, we do rank near the bottom of performance. And that can consistently be tied to how frequently we simply do not look out for those among us that need the most health, which again gets back to health equity. Yes, we have some of the best and the brightest in the world working to improve healthcare here, but we have not yet turned that brain trust towards meaningfully alleviating health
1: disparities. And that is why our performance continues to lag. Thank you for that history. I, think, I don't think a lot of people are aware of it. You've referenced how uh, politics have really played a, a major role then, dating back hundreds of years. So your latest book published by Johns Hopkins University Press is entitled The Political Determinants of Health. Can you describe uh, the political determinants of health a little bit more?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, the political determinants of health are the upstream factors that impact every component of our health and our healthcare system. The political determinants, they create the social drivers, including the poor environmental conditions, the inadequate transportation, unsafe neighborhoods, and lack of healthy food options, just to name a few, that affect all dynamics of health. So many people have an understanding of what the social determinants of health are. You heard me mention that earlier. These are the structural conditions in which people are born they live, they learn, they work, they play, they worship, that affect a wide range of health. Well, the political determinants go one step further. The political determinants of health are what actually creates, sustains, or exacerbates those social determinants, right? For every social determinant of health, there was a preceding legislative policy or legal decision that results in that outcome. So, For instance, it might be a law passed or a city council ordinance or a ruling handed down by a judge, but there is always some force of law or politics that create the disparities, and that
1: is what needs to be addressed, the political determinants. So politics clearly affects everyone's health. Are there any other ways that people might be surprised to learn that politics influences health? Absolutely. So let's talk about structural racism for
0: a moment, right? Because these political determinants of health really are the instigators, as you've heard me mention, when it comes to looking at all of the drivers that impact our health, whether environmental or social or behavioral. But undergirding these political determinants is what we term structural racism. And structural racism and the health of America are inextricable and they affect all of us at all levels. So think about it this way, right? Inequality gets under our skin. And it leads to accelerated aging or biological weathering. If you think about a block of concrete and a constant drip of water hitting that concrete, at first, you may not notice that water having an impact on that cement block, right? But then after a while... You can see it chipping away at the concrete. That's essentially what is happening in many vulnerable populations' bodies today, right? Owing to the stressors in our society of systemic racism throughout our society. And it leads, again, like I said, to increased chronic diseases that we see in terms of racial and ethnic minorities and other groups. So by its very definition, one of the structures that racism operates in is the healthcare system in America. So I want to focus on that a bit, right? Our history is littered with known examples. You can go as far back as the healthcare that was not afforded to slaves or indigenous populations, to the contentious creation of the Freedmen's Bureau that I just talked about, to separate but inherently unequal medical facilities, to the maternal mortality crisis Black women are facing today, to even the disparate impact that COVID-19 is having on communities of color. It's cumulative. Absolutely, that's right. And it compounds one after the other, right? So there is no ignoring the fact that structural racism is just as pernicious in healthcare as it is in any other corner of our society. However, the key thing to remember is that structural racism in our healthcare system is a net negative for
1: everybody. So from infection rates and hospitalizations to death... Why does COVID-19 disproportionately affect Native Americans, Latinx, and Black people?
0: You know, COVID-19 is a dangerous, all-encompassing, downright awful virus that is wreaking havoc on our country. But one thing COVID-19 is not is sentient. What I mean by that is, while it's true that COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting communities of color... It is not doing so because the virus itself is targeting black and brown folks. Instead, the system in which COVID-19 operates targets black and brown folks. During the early days of this pandemic, we thought that this virus was the great equalizer because it was infecting people without regard to how athletic or healthy they were or how rich they were. But we know now that COVID-19 has proven to be the great revealer. Because the virus is simply amplifying the disparities in the system that have existed and persisted for so many years to the detriment of so many minority populations. So, to succinctly answer your question of why uh, it is disproportionately affecting Native Americans, Latinx, and Black people, it's because our system disproportionately affects. Native American, Latinx, and Black people. COVID-19 is simply reading the room.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about Affordable Care Act. In your book, 150 Years of Obamacare, which you artfully describe the history of our country um, around health care, you explain how the Affordable Care Act is much more comprehensive than most people realize. What are the most overlooked benefits of the Affordable Care Act? The ACA is the most comprehensive and inclusive
0: health law employing an equity lens, which took us 150 years to realize in America. So this is an incredible legislative feat. It is a landmark law. To your point about what are some of those benefits, right, that are often overlooked, There were so many health insurance reforms and protections that were included in this bill. Uh, Many anti-discrimination protections, essential benefits, of course, that were included for women, for people with disabilities, for veterans, people of color and LGBTQ plus individuals. And some of these include the first ever protection that allows individuals the ability to go to a court of law and sue to protect their rights first ever health law that allows that right. Medicaid doesn't include that, Medicare, Social Security, none of those other health laws in the past include that private right of action. There are other provisions too that I think are really critical. For the first time ever in U.S. history, the law includes a mandate that employers, that health insurance companies, if they are offering a health insurance plan, a qualified health plan, they have to include mental and behavioral health coverage. That, again, is a huge feat, especially for people who have struggled with mental illnesses or substance use disorders in America. Then there was another provision for people with disabilities, where we included habilitative and rehabilitative coverage as part of 10 essential health benefits that you must get if you purchase a health insurance uh, plan from the marketplace. And then for women, we know that women... Uh, were treated as a pre-existing condition if they were of reproductive age. So the law you know, forbids, of course, discrimination based on their sex. They can't be charged twice as much as a man like they could pre-Obamacare. That is no longer allowed. And also if they have been the victims of domestic abuse, let's say they were raped, Insurance companies at that time would rescind coverage to many women because now they believe that the provision of health services was going to increase astronomically, right? They're going to need more psychological um, therapy sessions. They're going to need more physical uh, services and so forth. So they would discriminate and find any pretextual reason to drop their coverage. That is not allowed. And then another thing that is a really major win for us in the health equity movement was providing maternity coverage. 90 percent, that's 90 percent, 90 percent of women who thought that they had maternity coverage realized that they didn't have that coverage once they had gotten pregnant and they needed to use those benefits. And they were discriminated. So now maternity coverage is an essential benefit in the Affordable Care Act. That's another major deal.
1: You know, after we've gone so long with these health care disparities in our country. How do we protect the strides that we've made under Obamacare and the health equity movement with a conservative majority in the Supreme Court? If the Supreme Court overturned, you know, part or all
0: of the ACA, uh, the Biden administration would have a number of options. So, you know, it would be a complicated process, but with the leadership of a president and vice president that have spent so many years in the Senate, Coupled with the fact that the president-elect played a pivotal role in shepherding the ACA through Congress the first time, I'm fairly confident that he would and he could make certain that in the event of such a disastrous ruling, the country would remain protected. Now, the Biden administration will be hitting the rewind button on many of the health policies uh, from the Trump administration, especially. They'll also be working assiduously to unwind many of the Trump policies around reproductive health, drug pricing, uh, health disparities and, and health equity, right? Whereas the Trump administration primarily leveraged regulatory actions and executive orders to undermine key health policies and programs, you can expect the Biden administration to employ a very similar strategy. And this actually would be the first presidential administration in U.S. history that has committed to a very robust health
1: equity agenda in all of its policy priorities. You lead something called the Health Equity Tracker Project through a grant from Google, CDC Foundation, and Gilead Sciences. Why don't we have a better grasp on tying demographic data um, in this country? Realistically, the, the
0: answer to your question is twofold. I think first and foremost, opponents of the health equity movement understand the intrinsic value in having data that highlights demographic disparities. No data, no problem. If there is no data to illuminate an issue, right, or an inequity, then there is no problem that requires change. The second reason is that it is truly difficult to obtain demographic data for a whole host of reasons. Chief among these reasons being that we as a country have never prioritized collecting such data. So the system is not designed to easily tabulate it. The same systemic issues that exacerbate the political and social determinants of health are the same issues that make collecting data difficult. And this is not by happenstance, right? That said, the creation of the health equity tracker tool that we've been working on is
1: all the more important, precisely because there is no comparison. So do you think that maybe like more effective sharing of data will improve trust and transparency of vaccines? Absolutely, there is no doubt. And I think that gets to the heart of the
0: issue of transparency. You know, if you are giving people access to the data, right, and you're giving them access to all the data, then of course it does allow them to see for their own selves, right? What you have been saying is true. But if you are hiding the data or you're hiding even a part of it, then it does allow uh, for you know, opponents of these vaccines to push that agenda that uh, you know, they're hiding something that could be hurting you. So you know, you're just gonna be lab rats, you're gonna be guinea pigs, don't do it.
1: So I do think data is, is a critical element. Are you concerned, you know, with the health equity lens about equitable distribution of vaccines in the United States? I
0: am. And it's because if we do not learn from history, we are what? We're doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. A review of studies in this country have shown us that in many instances, you know, racial and ethnic minorities, people with disabilities, and other marginalized groups have been the most disproportionately impacted by pandemics. It's always the same group who are on the downside of advantage and opportunity that fear the worst. But during this pandemic, I've been heartened by the increased attention that we've seen and the efforts to ensure a more equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. And I think the incoming Biden administration will take the necessary steps to have a thoughtful approach to this issue. With that said, again, referencing those pesky political determinants of health
1: it will be incumbent upon all of us to continue to push for an equitable distribution of vaccines. Yeah, because one thing is having finally a federally coordinated response, and it's another to have that localized somehow in a way that is not convoluted by politics. So going forward, not just with COVID-19, how do we encourage or, you know, increase minority participation in clinical trials generally? Increasing minority participation in clinical trials starts at the top.
0: You know, you have to increase the diversity of the researchers performing and setting up the trials. I think you have to increase the diversity of the companies that are facilitating the trials, right? And then you have to increase the diversity of the medical and health professionals who are advocating for such. So going into and recruiting from communities that have traditionally been underrepresented in clinical trials is a good first step. But it's just that, a first step, right? You need to have diversity for every step of the process so that there is an echo chamber of individuals with actual power who can continually
1: push for the diversity throughout the entirety of the process. Yeah, so having researchers that are more reflective of our population that we're asking for participation, that makes sense. So if you had the power and funding, what else would you focus on, you know, broadly for vaccine development, trust and transparency? What would be like your first step? I I would say that we certainly need to
0: um, increase spending in our public health infrastructure, I do think that is absolutely critical at all levels, again, whether you are at the municipal level, the local level, or the state level, right? And even the federal level, because three cents of every dollar that has been invested in this country has been invested in public health. Why aren't we investing in more? You know, one of the issues that we've had to deal with over time is the fact that historically, policymakers have usually been reactive rather than proactive, right? So once the crisis is adverted, so too is the funding until the next crisis comes along and wreaks even greater havoc, right? So for me, in terms of what I would start first, it would be, you know, investments in equitable distribution of vaccines and equitably distributing them. Contact tracing, absolutely critical, right? Testing is absolutely critical. We've seen early on how with contact tracing and even with testing, how many communities of color were there raising their hands saying, hey, you know, we want to be counted too. We'd
1: like to be able to access uh, these resources, but they were ignored. If you have inequitable distribution of testing, then you cannot (laughs) perform contact tracing. And it's again, just part of a vicious uh, cycle. Absolutely. So uh, any other words of wisdom for our listeners, Daniel? We really appreciate all the time you spent with us today. My final words would be just to remind
0: folks about how long and challenging it has been to advance health equity in America and around the world. This is a movement that is not for the faint of heart, and it does take the resolve that is needed, right? It takes persistence, it takes courage, it takes knowledge. And so I want to urge our listeners today to really think about that and to continue to press this agenda, even when the tough gets going. Right. We've got to keep pushing and stop that pendulum from swinging too far that it unravels the gains that have been made previously by health equity leaders and champions throughout the course of our history.
1: Well, you've given us great context because I don't think anybody fully understood the hundreds of years it's taken us to get here. So we have to put our foot on the gas. You're an inspiration, Daniel. I can't thank you enough for your time today.
0: It's been great. Thank you so much, Justin, for the opportunity.
1: To learn more about the work that Daniel's doing to improve health equity and reduce disparities in our system, visit danieledaws.com or read 150 Years of Obamacare and the Political Determinants of Health from Johns Hopkins University Press. On the next episode, Deepthi had the opportunity to speak with Fianna Tulip, a grieving daughter who bravely and heroically shares the story of how her mother, Isabel Papadimitru, a healthcare worker from Texas, lost her life unnecessarily to COVID-19.
3: It feels like the leadership is letting my people die. You know, Hispanics, the Latinx community, people of color. it, It feels like they're just throwing them to the wayside and saying, good luck. I mean there's been a real failure among people of color and it, it it's it's speaking to deeper divisions that we have and to structural inequalities in this country and unfortunately you know the hispanic community they they are on the front line they they work in jobs that increase their risk of contracting the virus they're the ones who are caring for their elderly and living with them they're fulfilling online orders they're they're working in the hospital they live in institutions such as prisons and homeless shelters and and these are all places where it's easy to spread this virus and there's no support there's no support
1: Fiona's heartbreaking story is one we all need to hear, but she is truly an inspiration, turning grief into action.
3: When I really started out on this crusade, I guess you can call it, I started realizing that people would say, no, look at the death rate. It's not that bad. Or, but I need to see my family. It's more important that I see my family than stay home. Um, Masks don't work. In fact, I can't breathe with a mask. And It was so frustrating to me because I I just come back with, but I lost my mom, but I didn't have to lose my mom if we had just followed these simple public health measures. So I want people to know that this crisis, the, the one where my family must stay apart to do our part, even when we most want to be together, it's more than just death rates and a death count. It's a human life It's a person who has passions. It's a person who has children or or grandchildren. And and it's a person who didn't want to die this way. And it's a person who didn't want to die alone in a hospital. I I want people to know that and, and to think about that.
1: Okay, I want you, dear listener, to take the following very seriously to avoid a lifetime of potential regret. Think about the family and friends you love and care for, for just a moment. Now, consider the actions you take and the company you keep this holiday season. Is it worth maintaining your family traditions and gathering this year when it could mean some of you may not be around next year to enjoy another holiday? That any one of your family or friends could literally suffer in complete isolation on a ventilator to start 2021. That is, if they are even lucky enough to be offered one in our overextended healthcare system. If you had a choice between getting together for the holidays at the expense of losing one of your loved ones or electing not to gather this year, even though it hurts, which would you choose? Well, guess what? You do have a choice. Do you truly think for a virus that transmits asymptomatically, that you can control all the variables, whether it's three, four, or even five or more of your family and friends from different households? The entire country should have access to quality vaccines before next holiday season. Let's make sacrifices together. I know it's hard. We owe it to each other, and we owe it to our public health agencies and our frontline health workers. I don't care what your political persuasion might be, and neither does this virus. Let's just get through this holiday season together, please, without gathering from other households. Make sure you join us for the next episode of Contact World. I'm Justin Beck, and I'll see you next time. Listen to Contact World, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.